Well, it's a real joy to be back here at uh, Crossboat Community Church. We share common roots with Shasta Bible College, of course, that uh, it was started back in 1971 because this church had a vision to train men and women for ministry. And so we are grateful for the partnership that we have had over the years. We have so many dear friends who are in this church. Today I want to speak on the topic, the Christ of Christmas you may not know. I love Christmas, I'm sure you do too. It's been a privilege in our home to make Christmas a very special time for all of our family. And uh, this season just warms our heart. But you know today, many people don't have a full comprehension of what Christmas is all about. I'm reminded of the little boy who was in first grade and the teacher during Christmas season had asked him to draw a picture of Christmas. And so he did. Afterwards, she came to look at the picture. And she said, well, Johnny, this is a very fine picture. Who are these couple of people here standing up? Oh, teacher, that's Mary and Joseph. And, and what's in this, in this little manger here? Well, that's the baby Jesus. And I see an airplane over here. What is this airplane? He says, well, that's Mary and Joseph on the flight to Egypt. <laughs> and then he said, well, she said, in this corner over here, I see this kind of round, rotund individual. Who is he? The little boy said, don't you know, teacher? That's round yon virgin. Well, I'm afraid that some people who <laughs> celebrate Christmas don't have the faintest idea of the total, the total uh, story behind it. It becomes more about presents and Santa Claus and tree lighting and all that stuff. But the Bible says a great deal about this Christmas season. And uh, the Christ of Christmas, you may not know, is what I'm speaking on today. So, you may not know about his creation his creation. The Christ of Christmas was the agent in creation. And uh, I, have a, I have a dual responsibility here this morning, so I have to keep up with myself. <laughs> and uh, so we see his preexistence and power. The Bible says in John 1, 2, and 3, he was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Where is it? Not coming up up there. There it is right there, okay. Hope this is powerful to get up back there. There it is right there, okay. So, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And he is before all things, and in him, it says, all things consist. So the immensity of Christ's creation is absolutely inconceivable. I want to take you now on a tour of the stars. 
And uh, we find here Earth, and we see its relative size compared to Venus and Mars and Mercury and Pluto. And then we move on to Jupiter, and we see that Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune are much larger than the Earth. In fact, we look kind of insignificant, don't we? But then there's the Sun. Now, Caltech tells us that a hollow ball the size of the Sun, of our Sun, would hold about 1.3 million planets the size of our Earth. Also, we learn that the Sun is 864,938 miles across in diameter. And this is about 109 times the diameter of the Earth. Then there's Cirrus, the brightest star in the sky. That star is three times the size of our sun. Arcturus is 26 times the size of the sun. It's no wonder that Job in Job 9, 2, and 9 said, How should man be just with God, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades in the chambers of the south? But then there's Betelgeuse, which has a diameter 700 times the size of our sun, or 600 million miles. But that's dwarfed by Antares, which is 10,000 times brighter than the sun, and is nearly 430 times larger. If placed in the middle of the solar system, it would extend beyond Mars' orbit. Now that's big. That is big. And you begin to see the immensity of the creation of the Christ of Christmas. But then we come to V.Y. Canis Majoris. I haven't known much about this star until recently, but it is absolutely humongous. And there in the center, you see the little speck. That's the sun. That's our sun in comparison to the size of V.Y. Canis Majoris. You see the orbit of the Earth, still very small in comparison. And the orbit of Saturn is about as large in diameter as V.Y. Canis Majoris. And as I said, it's the largest known star, 26 or 2,600 times the size of the sun. And as I said, the sun is the speck in the middle, and it blows your mind to think of the immensity of Christ's creation. Psalm 8, 3, and 4 says it well. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have taken thought of him? Or what is man that you are mindful of him, the King James Version says. Well, I think Psalm 33, 6, and 9 says it all. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Aren't you glad he commanded, stand fast? We might be flying around in space right now if we didn't. 
Then we see his perfection and priority. The Apostle Paul tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation in Colossians 1 verse 15. Now, in the person of Christ, the invisible God has been made visible. The Greek word for image is the word icon. It refers to an exact representation or a representation derived from some kind of a prototype and conveys the idea that Jesus Christ is the visible representation and manifestation of God to created beings and is unique and perfect. So says the esteemed commentator J.B. Lightfoot in his book, St. Paul's Epistle to the Colossians and Philemon. Paul also says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this does not mean that Christ was created. There are some false cults that teach that Christ is a created being. And that's not sound doctrine. That's heresy, in fact. Because the Greek term protokos refers to his rank and not to his origin. And I'll tell you why. In Hebrew families, the firstborn had the inheritance rights. The firstborn was the heir. And similarly, in a royal family, the firstborn had the inheritance and rulership rights as well. So Christ not only inherits all creation, but also he has the right to rule over it by virtue of his, of his role or his rank. Prime Minister, it's called. Psalm 89, 27 clarifies this truth about Christ. The psalmist says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, this is the meaning of prototokos with reference to Jesus. He's the highest of the kings of the earth. He has the rank of firstborn. 1 Timothy 6, 15 calls Christ he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you find that same phrase in Revelation 19, verse 16. Hebrews 1, 2 tells us that God has appointed his Son, heir of all things, through whom he also made the world and upholds all things by the word of his power. Ladies and gentlemen, that's power. That is power. The Christ of Christmas has that power. He is the primary one, the son who has the right to the inheritance, the ranking person, the Lord of all, heir of the whole of creation. And the Christ of Christmas, that baby in Bethlehem, made it all. And apart from his upholding power, the entire world would fall apart. Then we see his conception his conception. The Christ of Christmas was conceived of a virgin, according to Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. Some people doubt that. But I want to give you some irrefutable proof today that this is true. Because the Old Testament foretold it. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. You know that. Now, the context of this passage is rarely shared. People skip over it at Christmas time, but really, it's amazing. The kingdom of Judah was threatened by Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of the king of Israel. It was a confederation from the north. And verse 2 tells us that the heart of King Ahaz at that time and the heart of the people in Judah shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, they were really terrified. Consequently, God sent the prophet Isaiah to calm down the king. He told Ahaz that these evil forces would not succeed and that they, would be, they should be firm in their faith. And if they were not firm in their faith, they'd have no faith at all. Verse 9. But Ahaz stubbornly, unbelievably, refused to take Isaiah's word. He tried to feign humility. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't ask that. Well, the Lord said then to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz refused to ask. So the Lord gave him a sign. And it was a much greater sign. The sign was the, the virgin, not a virgin, the virgin would conceive and bear a son whose name was Emmanuel. And that would signify God is with us. And before the promised son was old enough to make moral choices, the text says, the kings that threatened them would meet their own doom at the hands of the Assyrians, whom God ultimately used as a razor to shave and disgrace them as well as all of Judah. And I think probably because of Ahaz's doubt. Actually, the doom and disaster prophesied here would climax with the conquering of Judah by the Babylonians. And the consequences would continue until Messiah's return to establish his kingdom in the millennial reign of Christ. The prophecy extended over 700 years into the future because a greater deliverance would be provided by the arrival of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, Mashiach, Shamashia, and Yeshua HaMashiach, and he would be reigning for a thousand years. That's what the Bible says going to happen. And this was written by Isaiah 700 years before Christ's birth. And the Lord said to Ahaz, ask for a sign as deep as, the, as Sheol and as high as heaven. And this indicated it'd be something phenomenal or something miraculous. And furthermore, although a child was born in the context of Isaiah, there's no evidence that there was a miraculous birth to a virgin in the days of Isaiah. It didn't happen. So it had to refer to a future time, and that's how prophecy is. It's like a prophet standing at the base of, of one mountain and looking ahead across the horizon to the second mountain, and he sees what's beyond the second mountain. That's how prophecy works. So some question the virgin birth because the Hebrew word for virgin, betula, was not used. Rather, Isaiah used the word alma. But alma means a young woman. Betula means a virgin, but Alma can also mean a virgin. Depends on the context. And so Martin Luther was so sure that Alma meant virgin that he offered a thousand florins to anyone who could prove that Alma did not mean virgin. And then the incredible Hebrew scholar, 
Robert Dick Wilson, you may not have heard of him, but he was someone I studied when I was a teenager. And he was proficient in 45 languages related to Hebrew. One of the greatest scholars we've ever known. He stated that Alma never meant young married woman in that context. And that the presumption of common law is that every Alma is virtuous unless she can be proven not to be. And that came from his article in the Princeton Theological Review back in 1926. He said that. He also wrote many other books uh, entitled a book called Is the Higher Criticism Scholarly? As you know, the higher criticism began in Germany and they began to move away from believing in the inerrancy of Scripture back in those days and it became neo-orthodoxy and kind of eventually migrated to America and so many theologians have been confused because of the neo-orthodox position of the German rationalists. Even Jew Jewish scholar Cyrus Gordon, now Cyrus Gordon uh, taught our academic vice president Steve Brown and uh, he went to school in, back in Boston and Cyrus Gordon was his professor. Now Cyrus Gordon made significant archaeological discoveries at Rosh Shamra and conceded, and this is really powerful, that the archaeological evidence confirms that Alma means virgin. And that's found in the Journal of Bible and Religion, published in 1953. So with that evidence, that's pretty powerful. Professor William Beck adds to this evidence. He's a Lutheran. He wrote this in the Lutheran News. He says, who carefully researched, he carefully researched the use of Alma, and he writes this, I have searched exhaustively for instances in which Alma might mean a non-virgin or a married woman. There is no passage where Alma is not a virgin. Nowhere in the Bible or anywhere else does Alma mean anything but a virgin. We begin to get the picture here because the church father, Justin Martyr, explains the reason why any confusion took place. He says, the idea that Alma signifies just a young woman was first argued by the anti-Christian Jew Trifo in the mid-2nd century AD. And that's from his dialogue, page 67. So the church father, Justin Martyr, confirms that as well. You know what I explained about the German rationalists, it wasn't really until the mid-19th century that due to the influence of German rationalism, first felt in Europe and then in America, that even so-called conservative scholars began to doubt the virgin birth. Edward J. Young, a very fine Bible scholar and theologian, wrote a three-volume set on Isaiah back in 1965. And he wrote that to refute this compromising drift. He said this, there is no reason for the Lord's people to resort to such textual manipulations in dealing with the biblical evidence for the virgin birth of Christ. That's a quote from Wayne Jackson in the article, did Isaiah's, Isaiah prophesy the virgin birth of Christ? 
But beyond that, we know, we, we believe and teach that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. At Shasta Bible College, all our graduates have to take the course in bibliology. And they're supposed to be able to define verbal plenary inspiration, the process by which God superintended the divinely prepared human authors of Scripture so that using their own backgrounds, personalities, and styles, they composed and recorded without error God's revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. So because of that, we can have confidence in what the Bible says about this situation. The New Testament confirmed the virgin birth. Again, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 24. Four times in that chapter, it says that, it says that he, she was a virgin. Verse 18, before they came together. Verse 20, where that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, not of Joseph, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And then verse 25 says, and this makes it, this ties it up, puts a bow on it. Joseph did not know her, that's a euphemism for sexual relations, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. But one of the most powerful evidences is this. When, when the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint traditionally dated to the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus of Egypt around 285 to 246 BC was done, it made the Hebrew scriptures available to both the Jews and those who no longer spoke the language of Hebrew. So Ptolemy II directed his royal librarian to write Eliezer, the high priest at Jerusalem, requesting that six elders of each tribe, a total of 72 men, of exemplary life, translate the Old Testament into Greek. So the Torah was translated, that's the books of the law, near the, near the uh, middle of the third century BC and the rest in the second century. And guess what? When they came to Isaiah 7:14, to the word almond, they used the word parthenos, which irrefutably refers to virgin. Parthenos to translate the word almond. That's pretty good evidence. The Septuagint is still around today. I had to use it in my doctoral program. But uh, the evidence is there. We don't think about this much. We just accept it. But many people question it on liberal campuses, universities, in liberal churches. It's hard to believe. Hugh Schoenfield wrote a book called The Passover Plot in which he debunked the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. I was at USC back in the 60s walking down the street past the bookstore going, going to campus and there was a sign out front promoting the Passover plot by Hugh Schoenfield. I read that book and I, I taught then at L.A. Baptist College had my students <laughs> refute it. <laughs> it wasn't too hard. But this is a common, the common wisdom, you know, among secularists and on many university campuses. Well, we've seen his creation. You may also not know much about his condescension. But I think this graphic explains it pretty well. The first picture is supposed to be a depiction of possibly what heaven's like. 
an artist uh, drew it after reading Isaiah, or I should say Ezekiel, his vision in the first chapter. And the text says, though he was in the form of God, he did not hold on to equality with God. And then the second one, he emptied himself and was made in the likeness of men. The third, he took the form of a servant. Fourth, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was a very humbling thing to do. And then being in agony, he sweat drops of blood and became obedient to death in the garden before he had to face crucifixion, even death on the cross. So that's a pictorial depiction of the condescension. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul acquaints us with the magnitude of God's greatest gift. But before I go into this, I want to go back and tell you something funny about creation because I was, I was partly pre-med in, in college and uh, I took physiology. And I heard about this guy who was taking physiology, an exam. And he studied very hard for the midterm exam. It didn't do too well, boy. So he thought he'd really kill the exam for the final examination. And they've been studying aves or birds. And so he analyzed all the birds they'd studied, and he knew every part of the bird, could name it and everything else. He thought he had it really made. We get to class, and there's a kind of a lab table in front of the class, and the professor has three birds, stuffed birds, on that table. And he's covered all of the bird except their feet. And he says, now your task for this exam is to identify the, the family, the genus, and the species of all three of these birds by their legs. Oh, this kid was just blown away. He just absolutely couldn't believe this was the question on the exam. He sat there and meditated for a while and thought, went up and examined the birds and came back and in desperation he got mad and says, Professor, this is not fair. And he walked out of the classroom. It was a big classroom, lots of people in the class. As he walked out the door, the professor said, young man, what is your name? He said, your guess, buddy, your guess. <laughs> anyway, that's an old physiology joke. <laughs> All right, it's condescension. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul acquaints us with the magnitude of God's greatest gift in his description of Christ's condescension. He reminds us in verses 5 and 6 that he was divine in pre-existence, divine in his pre-existence. It says in that passage, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, two important words here reveal Christ's past and Christ's present. The words existed or being and the word form. Existed or being is from the verb huparkon. It's not the usual word for being. That's own. 
It's a present tense participle indicating that Christ not only existed as God in the past before his incarnation, but still exists in the form of God. So when you come and take Dr. Dr. Gunn, he spoke here last week, I guess, take his class in Greek, you'll learn some of these things, and it really opens up the scripture to you. Now, form is the word morphe. It refers to the inner, essential, or abiding nature of a person that never changes as opposed to the other form, word for form, which is schema, which describes the outward form that changes with time. Now, some of you have known me since I came in 1985. You know that my hair is white as opposed to being black when I came. You know that I look older. My, my outward appearance has changed since I came to Shasta Bible College, probably because of all my fundraising woes that I've had to endure, but the pressures of being in that position. But you know, that's an illustration of what schema means. It describes the outward form that changes with time. And morphe refers to the inner essential or abiding nature of a person that never changes as opposed to schema. Now, example. The morphe form of a man or woman is his or her manhood or womanhood that never changes, except in California and parts of America where they decide to change their sex, which is a much of ridiculous nonsense. And then the schema or form changes in the outward appearance throughout life. And as I explained, you're once a baby, boy or girl, then you're middle-aged, and then you become a senior. And you look different. Your outward appearance changes at all these stages of your life. Well, the Christ of Christmas then existed eternally and as the second person of the Godhead, equal with the Father, and he was God before and after his birth. Also, though Christ was equal with God, he didn't feel robbed of his position when he gave it up. There are two additional words that Paul uses here. One word is the word for grasp. It's harpazo. And the word for equal, which is isa. Now, grasp or harpazo is a verb meaning to grasp or snatch. And by using the noun form of this, this word... Paul's saying that the Christ of Christmas didn't regard his position of equal glory and majesty with God as a thing to be held fast or grasped onto. Equality, the word isa, emphasizes the equality of Jesus with God. We get our word isometric or equal measure or isosceles triangle, two equal sides from this word. And this helps us get a true picture of the great gift God gave us in the Christ of Christmas. But there's more. He was human in his incarnation. He emptied himself, it says, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Now, here... Paul uses one of the most vivid Greek expressions to clarify the sacrifice involved in the incarnation. It's the word kanao, which means to empty. We get our word 
kenosis from this word. And it refers to the self-emptying of Christ. Now, the question arises many times of what did Christ empty himself of? His deity? Did he become less than God? Some say he did. But the answer is no, because the context does not allow that. How about his divine power and prerogatives? Did he not have divine power in his humanity? Was he not able to exercise divine prerogatives? No. He, this is not true. He didn't give up those. The passage never says he ceased to exist in the form of God. Rather, it tells us he added the form of a servant. So he was still God. He was a God-man. What Jesus did in emptying himself was to voluntarily give up the independent exercise of his divine powers and prerogatives, otherwise known as his divine attributes. When he was born, he was born of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.20 says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Holy Spirit. When he spoke, he spoke the words of his father, John 12, 29. I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me. When he performed miracles, it was not in his own independent power, but the power his father gave him to perform them. John 5, 19. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. When he died on the cross and resurrected from the grave, it was not in his own power. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath one suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And this is why John said in John 10.18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see that? He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died on the cross for you and for me. What he laid down was his glory and the independent use of his divine attributes. What he took up was the form of a servant and the likeness of men. He felt like men feel. He looked like men look. And then thirdly, he was obedient in his atonement. Verse 8. Paul writes, And being found in appearance at schema as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Now, I said schema. Paul uses schema here for the appearance or form. He's saying that Christ not only became man in physical appearance outwardly, but that inwardly he became a man with human feelings and emotions along with other limitations. He endured what we endure, all the pressures, all the problems, desires, and influences for good and evil. He knows all that. And this morning... My friends, there isn't an experience that you've been through that he doesn't understand. 
In our circle of friends, Donna and I have found that many people are hurting now, facing all kinds of problems, whether it's in her women's Bible study or our personal friends, going through a lot. But he understands because he is the Christ of every crisis and is just the same today. He will solve your every problem if you'll only let him have his way. If the cross were only the story of a man hanging on a beam of wood, giving his life for what he deeply loves, sacrificing all for what he believes, any good news reporter could tell you that story in a few paragraphs. In fact, history is filled with such martyrs. And in the passing of most of them, humanity did not miss a heartbeat. Crosses are as familiar on the road of history as oak leaves are in autumn. And I've got a lot in my pool right now. What makes, it, what makes the cross of Jesus Christ different? I'll tell you that what makes it so different. Jesus Christ, the man who hung on that cross, had the power to come down from that cross and destroy his enemies. But he did not come down. He hung there and died for us. That man on the cross was holy and without sin. And that holy man was becoming sin for the whole world. And for the first time, he was experiencing separation from God, the Father in heaven. No human being has ever gone through what Christ went through. Because of his condescension, he made it possible for us to be acceptable to heaven. You see, he's provided salvation that saves not only for eternity, but will enable us to triumph over all those circumstances we face in his strength. Philippians 4.13 reminds us, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. He accomplished all this through his death on the cross of Calvary where he provided atonement for the sins of the world. And so the Christ of Christmas can become your Lord and Savior today if you We'll ask him to come into your life and forgive your sin and make you the kind of person that he wants you to be. Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There couldn't be a better time to become a Christian than on Christmas, wouldn't you? don't you think? Because during Christmas time, we celebrate the Christ of Christmas who came to be our Savior and to atone for our sin. Let's close our eyes and bow our head just a minute. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, so, much, so grateful for what you have done for us in coming to earth as a babe, living a sinless life, and then being born again. I pray, Lord, that you will just Touch the heart of anyone here today who doesn't know Christ as Savior. And may, Father, if there be one who does not know Christ, may this be the day that that person comes to know him, whom to know is life eternal. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.